Hi, I'm Josh Havens with the Lafayette County Libertarian Party. This is Ask a Libertarian number 8 with Stefan Kinsella, and today we are discussing anarcho-capitalism. How are you, Stefan? Pretty good. How about yourself? Doing well. Thanks for uh, agreeing to do another interview. Sure. I'm going to get started then. Um, could you please define exactly what anarcho-capitalism is for those who don't know? Anarcho-capitalism. Um, well, like all things in politics and libertarianism, even the definitions are controversial. So um, um, the term anarcho-capitalism typically has been used to refer to a particular type of libertarianism or a particular type of anarchism or more precisely a particular type of libertarian anarchism. Um, so t traditional anarchism would just be the opposition to the state. Uh, that, and that would include left, left anarchism. Uh, the libertarians don't think that is like a genuine or true form of anarchy because they basically don't support private property rights, so they don't oppose aggression in an institutionalized way. Um, so in other words, the, the society that they favor, even though it wouldn't have a state technically, would end up having something like a state because they don't support um, private property rights. So they end up supporting the institutionalized attack on private property rights. So I think the definition would be this. The, um, the libertarian, the anarchist, the anarcho-capitalist, I think we all kind of agree that there is a state in society. The state is the agency that has like a geographic monopoly over the use of force in a given area. It's the agency that can decree what law is, and, and, and more importantly, it can, de it can decide all disputes, including those between its so-called citizens or customers or subjects and itself. So it's, it's an agency with a monopoly over the use of force, violence, and law in a given area. That's what the state is as an agency. Now, anarchists believe that that agency is illegitimate for some reason. Libertarian anarchists have a particular reason for opposing it. Um, the so-called limited government or classical liberal or minarchist or night watchman state libertarians think there's a role for some kind of state, but they think that most states um, uh, exceed the valid functions of a state and are is, is, is illegitimate and criminal. The anarchist re regards a state as inherently criminal. The libertarian anarchist um, basically is a libertarian, which means that we uh, uh, believe in the non-aggression principle, which is a, a summarized version of our unique per, uh, perspective on property rights. So what you could do is you could say the libertarian is the person who believes in a unique property allocation scheme. That is, we believe that there is conflict in the world. It's good to reduce conflict. Property rights are allocated to reduce that conflict, and they ought to be allocated so as to fulfill that function of conflict reduction, and they should be allocated in a just way, in a way that people can see as just. And that basically boils down to the Lockean homesteading idea plus contract and a couple of subsidiary rules. Most people recognize those rules to some extent. Um, libertarians are just more consistent about it. So the libertarian essence is the non-aggression principle 
informed by property rights. That is, property rights allocations in accordance with lock, homesteading, and contract. So that's what makes us libertarians. Now, the more consistent libertarians recognize that if we're going to oppose aggression defined in this way, we oppose private crime or private aggression, but we also oppose uh, institutionalized or what you can call public aggression or crime. So that is uh, crime or aggression instituted on a widespread basis in society, typically by some agency, which we call the state. So we simply recognize that the state is uh, an, an agency that necessarily by its nature commits aggression, and therefore we believe it's unjust and illegitimate. The reason we say it's necessarily illegitimate is because the state has to do one of two things to be called a state. It has to either have the power to tax or it has to have the power to outlaw competition. Typically it has both. But the important thing to recognize is that either power implies the other. So for example, if a state only had the power to tax, it could outcompete all of its competitors because it could offer its services for a lower price because it's subsidized by the taxes. If a state has the power to outlaw competition, it can charge a monopoly price for its services because no one is able to go to a competing service provider for justice or defense. So they have to go to the state so the state can jack up the prices, which is equivalent to a tax. Uh, and of course, the state always, in practice, has claims the right to do both. And both of those actions are aggressive. Uh, it requires aggression to tax because that's just taking someone's resources that they own without their consent. That's called theft. Um, and outlawing competing defense agencies is also aggressive because you're actually threatening or using the use of force over someone who's not uh, aggressed against anyone else. They're just doing the same kind of service that the dominant state agency is doing. Um, because there's different types of anarchism, left anarchism, things like this, in libertarianism, we wanted to distinguish our type of anarchism from leftist type of anarchism. So we call it anarcho-capitalism in the past. And that's because Ayn Rand and some other uh, earlier libertarian theorists identified capitalism, which is the economic system of a modern, somewhat free market uh, economy. They identified that with the free market and with libertarian social rules. And I think that's largely right. I think it's it's correct that if you had a free market, if you had private property retrospected on a widespread systematic basis, then you would have emerged a free market and money and prices and trading and haggling and private ownership of resources. And then you would have the accumulation of capital, which is what capitalism really is. It's just the private ownership of the means of production. So you could expect that a libertarian society would result in capitalism. So the Randians and the earlier libertarians' identification of capitalism with libertarianism as a type of metonymy makes some sense, but I think it's not actually accurate. Capitalism is distinct from libertarianism. Capitalism is the economic system of an advanced libertarian society. But it's not the entirety of what the libertarian principles are about. It's just a result of them. 
Nonetheless, the term anarcho-capitalism championed by Rothbard and others sort of emerged to identify one particular brand of, of, of libertarian anarchy, um, I, which I agree with. I just tend not to use the term anarcho-capitalism as much anymore, or if I do, I try to define it carefully because otherwise it can get conflated with um, uh, with with um, with a particular attachment to um, the current free market systems, which is a criticism the left libertarians make all the time. So anarcho-capitalism, I would say, is a rights-based, proper property-based libertarianism that is so consistent that it sees the state as an illegitimate criminal gang because it infringes and invades property rights. Unlike the left, which sees the state as illegitimate for different reasons and which does not want to see a private hierarchical society with institutionalized property rights widely respected on a decentralized basis. Why do you think the thought of anarchy is so feared in today's culture? I don't even know if that's actually true. Uh, the government, the state systems we have now are so pervasive and are seen to be so um, uh, uh, inevitable. I don't really think people are worried about the state really disappearing. It doesn't look likely that, that that's going to happen. But the proponents of the state have done a good job and I include in this the, the, the socialists and the, the so-called left anarchists who say they're against the state, but they're really in favor of centralized planning, which requires a state. Um, they've done a good job of equating anarchy with chaos and with disorder and with war and conflict and fighting. Uh, it's a little bit ironic because the entire libertarian system and idea – arises from a desire to avoid conflict. It arises from the recognition that humans interact. We use scarce resources in a world full of scarce resources. So conflict is possible and even inevitable unless we have a system of rules, property rights, right, that allocates rights to use these resources in a way that people can use them in a, in a, in a peaceful way, in a productive way, in a cooperative way with each other. Um, so the entire system of anarcho-libertarianism, as I prefer to call it instead of anarcho-capitalism, uh, anarchist libertarianism simply is the most consistent form of libertarianism, which is based upon a desire to have property rules recognized and respected in society that permit cooperative activity among people and permit conflict to be avoided. So to equate anarchy or to, to equate libertarianism with Conflict and chaos and, and battle and clashing is perverse because we're actually the only ones trying to come up with rules that would allow that to be avoided. Uh, why is anarcho-capitalism superior to limited government or minarchism? Um, I don't think we have enough time in the lecture for me to go through all the reasons why um, it is superior. Uh, it's superior because it's true, number one. It's superior because um, limited government is a misnomer. There's no such thing as limited government. Or in, the, in another sense, every government is limited, so it's a trivial qualification. Put it this way. 
pretty much every government or every state that's ever existed on the face of the earth has limits. They're not infinitely powered, and even the most totalitarian despotic regime, there are natural limits because the the people that rule the top have to get the ascent of the people lower down the pyramid and lower down and so on. So there has to be an interplay between these layers of control, uh, which means there are limits on what the absolute leader can do. If he goes too crazy, he'll he'll finally get assassinated. Um, so every government is limited. Every state is limited. So to say you're in favor of limited government is not to say anything meaningful. Um, what people, I think, mean to say is they want a very tiny or a very small government. But, of course, even some objectivists and some so-called minarchist and limited government types say that, well, that doesn't mean the government has to be small. In, in a time of war, for example, the government might have to tax up to half, 50 percent of the income of society or maybe even more to, to protect it from an invasion. So they don't think that a small government is what limited government means. So what does it mean? Uh, it doesn't mean that… It has to do justice all the time because they believe in a court of highest authority, a Supreme Court, because they want a final decision on matters, whether it's right or wrong. So they crave finality and certainty more than they would crave justice. Um, so limited government can only be a loose expression to mean they want a state with the power to tax and the power to put people in jail and the power to uh, – uh, enact legislation and to enforce legislation by government force, um, but limited by certain classical liberal considerations like some freedom of speech, some uh, some individualism, you know, some free market, maybe some constitutional protections, but none of those are absolute. So limited government in in essence means nothing but a government that is somewhat more prescribed than other governments and more in the Anglo-American tradition, which may make it superior, but it doesn't make it superior to real libertarianism or anarchy because, as we've seen, even the best hypothetical so-called limited governments never stay that way, and they never even get there in the first place. So the best example people give is uh, England or even the early United States, but of course the early United States… Had widespread slavery and disregard for the rights of uh, the English and women and Native Americans. Uh, had alien sedition acts. It, it, it penalized uh, uh, criticism of the state. It killed people for crimes that are not really crimes. It had wars every several years from the beginning of the country until today. So. Even that experiment or that uh, example is not really anything close to libertarianism. So I guess one criticism of limited government is that they criticize anarchy for being utopian and unrealistic when what's really unrealistic is to expect an agency with the power of taxation and a monopoly over force in a given area to remain constrained. Especially when, in, when historical evidence shows that this has never ever happened in the history of the world. Supposedly the best experiment, the best government that's ever existed is the early American government despite the fact of slavery and our other sins. And yet this best example case of a night watchman state has metastasized 
or blossomed into the most powerful and dangerous and destructive state on the face of the earth in, in the entire course of human history, the United States government right now. So there's no evidence, there's no theory on the side of limited government that it's even possible or that it's compatible with libertarian principles. Uh, even a limited state, even in its pure form, violates individual rights, which supposedly is the purpose of having a state is to protect indiv individual rights. So it outlaws competition, and it taxes people, and it jails people, and it kills people. So anarchy is superior <laughs> to so-called limited government because it's more coherent and it's more libertarian. It's also more stable. Uh, there's no reason to believe that a small state would stay small, and they never have, and they never do. They start small. If they're good, if they're prosperous, they grow – if the people – that they're taxing are prosperous, the state grows larger, and then it finally collapses, like all empires eventually seem to do. So limited governments are the ones that are unstable. Anarchy would be a system where there is no agency of institutionalized compulsion. So there would be no state to get a purchase and to start growing larger. How would crime be dealt with without cops and courts? Um... So let me take a meta uh, approach to this. Um, first of all, questions are not are not arguments, and that question has buried in it a lot of assumptions. Uh, so I reject some of the assumptions of the question. Number one being the idea that you can't have cops or courts without a state. Of course you can have cops and courts without a state. You would have private cops and private courts. Um, but the other assumption of the question is that if is that if you ask a question of a proponent of a given system which relies on him making a prediction about what the future world would look like and if he can't answer that question to your satisfaction that that is somehow um, a criticism of his underlying norms and values i just reject that the future is unpredictable inherently so the question you asked would be akin to saying Okay, hey, we have a communist system right now. There's only one maker of toothpaste, but at least everyone gets horrible toothpaste. It's horrible, but we get it, and same with toilet paper, etc. I don't understand what a future world of free market competition would look like. I'm not sure who would make toilet paper. I'm not sure how many brands there would be. I'm not sure who would make toothpaste, and I'm not sure how many brands there would be. And because I'm not sure of that, I want you to guarantee to me that your new system that we're going to replace – communism with will give us as good and as much toilet paper and toothpaste as we have now, and I want you to tell me how many brands there would be and who would produce it. Um, and my answer would be I don't know. You guys have suppressed the discovery function of the free market by your centralized control and command control of the economy, and so we don't know how many brands of toothpaste there would be. So my first answer is I don't know, and it doesn't matter, and, it, and if I don't know… That's not an argument that we need to keep the command and control communist centralized system in place. The, as I said earlier, the essence of anarchy is just the recognition that the state is an agency of aggression. And if you're against aggression, which libertarians supposedly are, you simply have to recognize that the state is illegitimate. Likewise, by analogy, we libertarians recognize that… Private crime 
is illegitimate. For example, rape, murder, theft, uh, etc. Right now, you could posit a future utopian world where we're like we're so libertarian that it's it's it would be a utopian world for us to to live in right now. Yet, because people have free will, and because of the way economics works, and because if you have a rich, prosperous society, and 99.9% of the people are peaceful, they leave their doors unlocked because crime is diminished to zero, there's going to be an increasing incentive for one guy on the edge of society to break the rules, and he can just you know um, steal from and harm the sheep. That will happen. Um, just because we're, we say we're – just because we, we can recognize that we will never totally eliminate private crime, um, even if it's largely eliminated, doesn't mean that we aren't against it. So we recognize as a principled matter that aggression is wrong, rape is wrong, theft is wrong, assault and battery is wrong, murder is wrong. This is not this, – this normative – Analysis is not changed by the fact that even in the best imaginable society, you you will still have an occasional occurrence of these acts of injustice. Okay. Likewise, just because the state um, will continue to harm people doesn't mean that the state is is legitimate. We say the state is legitimate, illegitimate. It doesn't mean we have a prediction that the state will go away. If I say rape is wrong, it doesn't mean I have a prediction that in the best possible world there will be absolutely zero rape for the for forever for the end of time. So we have to not conflate predictions with normative assessments. Do you think there would be a, a prison system in an anarcho-capitalist society? What's the system of punishing wrongdoing? And see, these are interesting questions, and I'd be happy to give my my guess, but that's all it is is a guess. But so again, I think we have to be careful not to conflate um, armchair predictions and armchair theorizing with the way the with, with 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 normative analysis. All we can say is that aggression is unjustified. That's the main thing libertarians can say. We can borrow on our common sense, on our knowledge of history, on our economic knowledge, our knowledge of of human society and culture. We can make guesses or predictions about what would emerge. Now, based on all that, I have some guesses based upon the work of other theorists and my own uh, thinking. Whether they're right or wrong, I don't know, And but their rightness or wrongness is not, uh, not really relevant to whether our libertarian norms are correct. In other words, even if my guess about what society would look like is wrong, it doesn't mean – uh, that murder and rape and the state are justified. They are definitely unjustified, and they cannot be justified. No one ever tries to. Instead, they switch the topic, and they ask you to make predictions about what the society would look like. Now, so my guess is the following. I believe that in an advanced, uh, commercial, rich, prosperous, modern, free market, cosmopolitan society, which I think would and could emerge um, in a free market libertarian rights respecting society which i think we pretty much have now to some degree to some degree i believe that um by and large institutionalized punishment of criminals would be very very rare 
and there's reasons for that. I think that punishing criminals, um, number one, is way more expensive than dealing with them by restitution for practical and historical reasons. I've written on this, and I can give you some links that you can post. Um, Randy Barnett has talked about this and others. Um, the burden of proof would be different, for example, to prove someone is so guilty beyond a shadow of a doubt to justify punishing them that it would just be more expensive. I think restitution would be a much more accepted practice. Uh, on occasion, I could see vigilante justice being carried out by some distressed family member of a victim, and probably in those cases, most of society would turn a blind eye and just let it go. But having a, a corporation that is actually hires employees to do torturing of people, even though it's theoretically justified under some libertarian uh, proportionality principles is really hard to imagine because it's expensive. It doesn't do really anyone any good except the victims on occasion, but how are they going to pay for it? And if you make a mistake, then you're compounding the damages because now you have to pay lots of money to the family or to the victim who was you know, who was uh, unjustly tortured, let's say, and then maybe executed. Um, so I think that private justice would tend to try to minimize the cost of making a mistake which means they would just go for a restitution based system and i think that would that would be better for retro, uh, for um uh rehabilitation purposes uh someone is going to be rehabil rehabilitated back into society if they have a way of paying their debt being forgiven and coming back instead of being Locked in jail with a bunch of other criminals, taught how to steal, you know, uh, taught the hard life, and paid for by taxes or by everyone else. So I believe there is a role for violence in self-defense, but I think that on an institutionalized basis in a free society where there was no state, I, I just think we would see punishment meted out very rarely. What happens to people who can't afford private firefighters or private police? Um, well, they benefit to some degree by the free rider effect right? because the police are out there defending the property of um, people that can't afford it, which you can call the rich, but which would be like the top 97% of society in a free society because most people would be rich anyway. Um, I think realistically that wouldn't be a big problem. I think they would they would tend to be taken care of by the charitable services provided by these agencies or by society at large. I don't think it would be a big cost. But you cannot say that on occasion someone, say, falls through the cracks. But of course that happens now, and that happens in any society, and it's always going to happen. And that's not a, an attack on the system. It's, an, it's just a recognition of human nature and the fact that uh, life is uncertain, and there will always be people who are self-destructive or have bad luck. So some of them would benefit from the richer society at large. I mean, to be honest, if you imagine a future libertarian utopia, just imagine our society 50 years from now, 100 times richer, 100 times freer. Maybe 0.01% of society are very poor. Everyone else is very rich. The very poor could be helped by the scraps from the tables in effect of the richer class, which would be 99% of society. 
I just don't think it would be a realistic problem. What's the recourse if someone violates a contract? Huh. Okay. Now that's a different. Th this goes into a whole different area. I don't. Um, I cannot go into this in detail right now. It would take half an hour or three hours to go into this. Um, I'll, I'll try to summarize, but I would say anyone interested in this topic should look at my article on my website on uh, contract theory, um, which is based upon Rothbard and Williamson Evers' pioneering work on contract theory. We have to view contracts as simply a consequence of property rights. That is, the fundamental libertarian insight is that scarce resources that can be disputed over or conflicted over have an owner. We have to identify an owner. We use property rights allocation rules to identify the owner, and that determines the the answer to the question of who gets to use this, this resource in the case of a dispute. Okay, This implies that the owner of a resource has the right to dispose of the resource as he sees fit or to deny permission of another person to use the resource. That's what it means to have a property right, to deny someone else the right to use the resource. Or you could permit them to use it. That's called license. So the owner of a resource – the owner of a resource has the right to – decide who can use that resource. That's where contract emerges from. Contract just means the the declared intention of the owner of a resource as to who as to which other parties can use it and to which extent. Whether it's permanent or temporary, whether it's limited or open-ended, whatever. So a contract is just a way of specifying what the owner has agreed to let someone else do with his resource, and that includes the ultimate extreme of transferring the ownership of the resource to someone else. So contract simply is a way of, of helping to determine who owns a resource. That's why I said earlier the libertarian property allocation rules are Lockean homesteading combined with consent or contract, which means to determine who owns a given resource – we can look at who first owned it, but we also need to see if the original owner contractually transferred it to someone else. So contract is simply used to determine who the owner of a resource is. So in a sense, there's no such thing as breach of contract, and in a sense, there's no such thing as enforcing a contract. We just use a contract to determine who the owner of property is. Once we determine that, then we revert back to property rules to determine what the owner can do to reacquire his property, to oust a false user of his property, um, etc. So it really all would come back down to property rules. So the answer would be whatever the property rules say an owner can do to, to defend and protect and reacquire his property is what the answer is. The contract is just the evidence of who the owner is. And by the way, I would, I would just recommend anyone interested in this, look into the Chicago School's theory of the efficient breach of contract, um, which is similar in some ways to the Rothbardian and Evers' view of title transfer theory of contract, which does not view contracts as binding promises or obligations, but simply as evidence of a transfer of title of ownership to a given resource.
In my previous interview with Arlie Wrights, he said that libertarians are too small a group to be divided into smaller groups. Do you think minarchists and anarcho-capitalists can work together, or are differences too significant? Well, that's a tactical, strategical question. I don't focus on that. I don't specialize in that. Uh, I see no reason in principle why they can't work together any more than um, I see no reason I can't work with my grandpa or my cousin or my CPA or a conservative or even a liberal on certain issues to achieve a certain goal. Uh, so I would just view this as a technical question really, um, a practical question. Um, but I actually do not – in a sense, I don't see minarchists um, – is that what you said, minarchists? Yeah. I don't really see minarchists as libertarians to be honest. I think they're just many statists They're just a different type of statist. Um, so you can work with some statists. In fact, most people that are not anarchists, libertarians are statists of one type or the other, but we can work with them strategically. I mean I can work with a dog groomer down the street to get my, my poodle groomed, so I'm working with them for a cooperative end. Can we sometimes work with these non-libertarians on political ends? I suppose, but to me it's just a, uh, a practical question about whether that's going to be successful. I don't see as a practical matter much benefit in the real world to working with status in the political electoral politics realm, um, but other people have different opinions. I don't see that the Libertarian Party is, is useful. I don't see that it makes any sense to uh, you know, want Gary Johnson or Austin Peterson or whoever to debate with Trump and uh, Hillary Clinton in this current election like as if that matters or as if it would matter if some Libertarian Party candidate actually won, which is impossible anyway, uh, as if the current administration of the state is the real problem. Which it's not. The state is an agency that exists independent of its current administrative people, right? So even if you replace the entire current administration with someone else, the state will chug along nicely and keep taxing us and keep having wars. Um, so I don't think that's the way to have progress. Um, in fact, I don't know if anything we do can can make progress um, in, in the activist sense. And let me explain what I mean. Um, For liberty to be justified, it has to be natural in a sense. It has to be realistic, and for liberty to survive for a long time, it has to be self-sustaining. That is, it has to make sense. Liberty can't be something that we always have to be bootstrapping, that like 1% of us who've read Henry Hazlitt's Economics in One Lesson, we're always out there whipping up everyone else who are just idiots who haven't read anything, and we're just kind of always trying so hard to educate them. … to understand the importance of liberty and free market economics and etc. If that's what liberty depends upon, we're doomed because we will never win that battle right? because most people are going to live their lives. Liberty has to be common sense at a certain point. It has to have its own internal logic. It has to drive itself. In a way, it's like communism and Marxism. Uh, you know, The original idea was that Marxism or communism was inevitable, right? but the Marxists said, well, but we need to push it along a little bit by… You know, I, so I, libertarians are, are similar in the fact that they have to implicitly believe that liberty is inevitable because if it's not inevitable, it doesn't have a natural logic of its own. It will never sustain itself. It's just a temporary fire that will burn itself out. right? If it always depends upon some small core of activists to keep it alive, I don't think it can exist. It has to have its own logic, and I think it does and can. 
or will. Maybe. So I think that really our job as libertarians is to understand, to think, to keep the remnant alive, to push where we can, maybe, but to be realistic and to recognize that if liberty is going to come and if it's going to last, it has to come on its own. And how could that be? How could that happen? I think it's, uh, I think it's, it could only come and maybe will come. Maybe not in our lifetimes. I don't know. Maybe in the next 10, 20, 50, uh, I should say 10. 10 years is too close. Let's say 30, 50, 70 years. As society becomes way more cosmopolitan, way more progressive um, and tolerant, um, far more rich, and the free market rules are so embedded in what we always do that they, they become ingrained. At a certain point, the state just fades away. Because it serves no purpose and its, its justifications become increasingly ridiculous. So I see that as technological freedom and as prosperity increases, the state's role just naturally atrophies. Um, that's what I'm hoping for. But if that's the case, we libertarians serve no role other than historians explaining the background economics basically of what's going on. We're not the cause of it. In fact, I don't think we libertarians could ever be the cause of societal liberty. And I don't think that's what our goal is. The problem is this insight would upset a lot of activist libertarians. That's why I'm not an activist, and I've never been an activist in that sense. If I thought that I could only have an effect, or if I thought that I should only be a libertarian, if I could have a direct effect immediately right now or in the next two or three years on society, I would give up. And that's in fact what a lot of activists do. They're what I call way station libertarians. They come into the movement. They get they hear Ron Paul. They used to be some fascist or some stupid liberal. They become a temporary libertarian. They get all excited about – they shift their politics from Bernie or Hillary or, or George Bush or Newt Gingrich. They shift it – or Ronald Reagan, whatever. They shift it to Ron Paul or some the, – the latest libertarian fad, Austin Peterson or, or, or Gary Johnson or, or whatever, you know, McAfee. So they just shift it, and then when they don't achieve success or direct concrete results in the next couple of years, which they never do, right? The state's gotten slowly bigger and slowly more controlling over the last 50 years steadily despite libertarians' increasing size. They get dispirited and disillusioned, and they drop out, or they say they've abandoned libertarianism, or libertarianism doesn't work, or whatever. Or they blame society, or they blame the libertarian party. They start becoming uh, blaming the victim types. So I just see this entire electoral politics activism route as being destructive because we should be for liberty for the eternal things, for the right reasons, for the long run, uh, because we, we believe in truth and liberty, because we want to be on the right side of history, because we want to preserve a remnant of understanding that will come in useful someday, and we want to hope for liberty, and we want liberty to come someday for our children or our children's 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 children. Um, but I'm not going to give up on liberty just because it's not going to come in my lifetime, and it will not come in my lifetime. And it may come in stages, but it's not going to come in my lifetime. Has there ever been an anarcho-capitalist society in human history? Um, well, there have not, not to a hundred percent degree, but and but, but uh, for centuries in different societies, as chronicled by by David Friedman and Murray Roth. Uh, I would just refer people to read David Friedman's Machinery Freedom, Murray Rothbard's For a New Liberty, and the most recent one is uh, Gerard Casey's um, 
libertarian anarchism where they both talk about some ancient societies like ancient Ireland and ancient Iceland where some version of something appro approximating anarcho-libertarianism existed for centuries, um, which by the way I think is another reason why uh, limited government or minarchist libertarianism is not as good as anarchist libertarianism is because there has never ever in the history of the world been a limited government or a limited state. And if there has, it only lasted for a brief time and always metastasized into something that we all recognize as way out of bounds, uh, like the U.S. case. Uh, and I would say there's never been a state that's been anywhere near minarchist or legitimate. So there's no empirical or historical evidence on the side of limited government types that limited government is even possible. Yet there have been some historical examples of something similar to anarchy that have existed for centuries and have been stable. Um, so yes, I would say so, and I would say that's an evidence – that's more evidence on the side of the anarchist um, libertarians than the limited state libertarians. Last question. Uh, who are some of the people responsible for your uh, reaching this uh, ideological viewpoint, and the, are there any books you would recommend if someone wants to get into this more? Yes. Um, I've actually got a list uh, – and, and, uh, and, uh, a libertarian – bibliography or a libertarian greatest books reading list. It's on my website, stephankinsella.com. So I list a lot of the books that I think are key. But I would say easily it's Ayn Rand, although she was not an anarchist, but Ayn Rand's thought, uh, Henry Hazlitt, and Milton Friedman's kind of basic economics like capitalism and freedom, uh, Bastiat, The Law, works like that. And on a more advanced uh, uh, or radical level, you would have the Tannehill's uh, the Market for Liberty, Murray Rothbard's The Ethics of Liberty, and For a New Liberty, uh, and Mises, of course, Mises' economics, primarily his methodology, The Ultimate Foundation of Economic Science being one of my favorite books of all time, and Hans Hermann Hoppe. So the work of those theories, uh, those theorists, and Hoppe's uh, A Theory of Socialism and Capitalism would be uh, one of the most important books I think written in a long time that I've ever read. Although I wouldn't read it first, so I would start with the more basic economic stuff like The Law by Bastiat, Economics in One Lesson by Hazlitt, Capitalism and Freedom by Milton Friedman, maybe some of Rand's novels, but be careful when you read them not to take take it too seriously. Um, uh, but it does have some inspiring themes and some 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 good attitudes. Uh, and then later on, yeah, so I would, I would read Austrian economics and the more radical thinkers like Bertrand de Juvenal, um, Against the State, uh, writers like that. But I think Hoppe and Rothbard, to my mind, the, the main thinkers that are correct are Hoppe, Rothbard, and Mises. But in terms of influence, I would also add um, Ayn Rand and Milton Friedman and, um, and Hazlitt and Bastiat. All right. Well, thanks, Stefan, for another uh, great interview. Um, take care, and we will see you maybe soon. <laughs> yep. Thanks.